This morning we are continuing our sermon series on the extraordinary power of God through the ordinary means of grace. In the summer we've been using Acts 2:42, this extraordinary description of God's people after Pentecost, the activity of the early church, that they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, the fellowship the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And so if you've been with us this summer, during the month of June, we looked at the apostles' teaching, the word of God. The month of July, we looked at the fellowship, what it means to be the community of faith, to be the church called together in fellowship. And now in the month of August, we're looking at what it means to be devoted to the breaking of bread and the prayers. What I want you to notice about those two things is that this wasn't just any kind of breaking of bread or praying. It is the breaking of bread and the prayers. In other words, what is referred to in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, this practice of the early church, was corporate worship and corporate prayer. It was the weekly, ordinary gathering together as God's people to worship together as they had grown accustomed to in the temple. And now as early Christians, they, as the writer of Hebrews would say, they would not forsake the opportunity to meet together. But they met together often to worship together as God's people. And so during the month of August, we're going to talk together what it means to participate in corporate worship and what that means for us as the body of Christ. So children, grab a bulletin. You two adults, I want you to follow along during the sermon, and every time you hear me reference one part of our liturgy, I want you to circle it, and I want you to pay attention to the story that our worship tells. I invite you now to stand for reading of God's Word. This is John chapter 4, beginning with verse 7. John tells us, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, You have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it for himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Jesus said to her, 
Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. What does the word liturgy mean to you? When you hear the word liturgy, what do you think of? Do you think of this bulletin? and our order of worship. For some of you this morning, when you hear the word liturgy, you think of the word tradition. You think of the word reverence. For those of you, when you hear the word liturgy, you think of stuffy and rigid and outdated. But the truth is, the word liturgy simply means the way that we worship. And every one of us has a liturgy. And this is true whether we are worshiping God or worshiping things. You see, even out in our secular world, there are liturgies. Philosopher James K.A. Smith calls cultural liturgies. And if you don't believe me, I want you to just think about some of the cultural liturgies that you and I practice every day that are being disrupted right now. There's the liturgy of sport. I don't know how many of you have caught a baseball game since opening day, but our ordinary liturgy of baseball is being disrupted. It is a weird thing to watch a home run fly into the empty stands. It's even a weirder thing to see that ball actually hit a cardboard cutout of somebody in the the face. (laughs) It's a strange thing to then watch that major league slugger round the bases to silence And if there is cheering, it's actually being piped in, pre-recorded. Our liturgy, the magic of baseball, the thing that we feel when we watch a game, it's been disrupted. Or there's the liturgy of going out, whether it's going shopping or going out to eat. That ordinary practice that we go to, to to feel something, to feel connected to the world around us is being disrupted because you have to wear a mask. And so going to a grocery store with a mask on your face, I don't know about you, but it makes me feel even more disconnected from the people around me. That ordinary practice of shopping for groceries has been disrupted. Or there's the liturgy of going to work. And I don't know about you, but if those of you who have really struggled to continue to be on Zoom calls, you're not alone. Zoom fatigue is real. And there have been countless, very awkward moments in some of my Zoom calls. I'm sure there's been for you as well. 
That cultural liturgy of being in the office, of feeling some kind of validation by being in a corporate setting, about being able to work with some kind of efficiency, that's been disrupted. You see, each of these things in and of themselves is not bad. But sports, going out to eat, work, all of these things can be idols. And what we might not realize if we're not careful, it's not just that we worship these things and find validation in these things, but it's actually that we have a liturgy, a ritual with which we practice these things. And these liturgies shape us. These liturgies tell a story. They tell a story of where we find value, where we find worth, where we go to for help. There is only one liturgy that tells the true story of salvation. Only one liturgy that we can devote ourselves to and find real, lasting transformation. Only one liturgy that is a story of rescue. And it's the liturgy of the church of Jesus Christ. It's a liturgy that we practice every Sunday morning on the Lord's day when we come together as his people in worship. And so this morning, using the story of the woman at the well, I want to walk through our liturgy. What I want you to see is that it tells a story, a story of our salvation, and it is a story that we need now, maybe more than ever. The first thing that our worship tells us is that Jesus calls us. I want you to look with me at the passage, John 4, verse 1. John tells us that a woman from Samaria came to a well, Jacob's well, to draw water. And Jesus comes to her and says, give me a drink. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is that it is Jesus who approaches the woman, not the other way around. The woman does not go up to Jesus. She does not ask him a question. She does not say, hey, can I offer you anything? No, Jesus initiates with the woman. And that's the way it's always been and always will be. Jesus initiates with us. He pursues us. He calls us. And so Jesus comes up to this woman, and this woman can't believe that he's talking to her. I want you to look at verse 9. The Samaritan woman said, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then in parentheses, John gives an aside, an explanation of why, why this is such a big deal. He tells us Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. What you need to know is that Jews and Samaritans hated each other. There was a deep ethnic divide between the two of them, animosity that went back for generations all the way to Jacob and the 12 tribes. You see, originally, Jews and Samaritans shared a common heritage. But when the 12 tribes of Israel were divided, the northern tribes were put into captivity by the Assyrians. And while the northern tribes of Israel were in captivity, they intermarried with the pagan culture around them. And what was produced were the Samaritans. 
The Samaritans were an intermingling of Jewish and pagan culture. They threw out most of the Old Testament. They established a temple, not in Jerusalem, but their own temple in Mount Gerizim. And they did things their own way apart from the Jewish people. And so the Jews, when they thought of the Samaritans, they recognized that they were unclean, that they had been intermixed and influenced with the pagan culture around them, that they were rebels, they were outcasts, they could not be spoken to. And so for Jesus to come and approach this woman from Samaria, he was transcending all of that, going against all of these cultural norms all of this animosity between two different people groups. Jesus was transcending all of that, and he was calling to this woman of Samaria. Now, what does that have to do with you and me? Brothers and sisters, friends, I think we're going to be honest as we come to worship today. We might as well be Samaritans. We are outcasts. We are rebels We have intermixed with the pagan culture around us. We have allowed the idols around us to seep into our hearts. And as we come to corporate worship, we might as well be Samaritans. Ordinarily, we have no business being in the presence of God's holiness. And yet, God, by his mercy, has called us. He has invited us. He has said to you and to me, though you are sinful and though I am holy, I am stepping down into your mess in the person of Jesus and his incarnation. And I am inviting you to come into my presence and worship me. That is why every Sunday morning, our liturgy, our worship begins with a call to worship. We begin with a call to worship, not just because that's our traditional practice, not because we just want to have a a reading in one of the Psalms. We begin with a call to worship because we recognize we are sinful. We have no business being in the presence of God, and it's only by his mercy that we can come into his presence. It is only by his mercy that he invites us to come in to his sanctuary, to this holy place as God's people and worship him. And so this morning, our call to worship was taken from Psalm 95. You can turn there in your bulletin. Psalm 95, verse 1, I want you to hear this as if it was an invitation to you. God's invitation to come and worship him. Psalm 95, verse 1 says, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. God, by his mercy, And by his grace has invited a bunch of sinners like you and me into his presence. That is why we sing. That is why we worship. And so I ask you, what are your expectations when you come to corporate worship? What do you expect is going to happen? Right now, if we're going to be honest, maybe it's not a whole lot. Worship right now during a pandemic As it turns out, it's kind of hard. For those of you in the sanctuary this morning, you're wearing a mask, and it's cumbersome, I know. For those of you worshiping online, 
you find yourself distracted. For those of you who are young families, if your kids are like mine, I love you girls, they're climbing on your head right now. And I know that's hard. Try letting it happen while you're preaching a sermon that you preached and they're climbing on your own head. That actually happened to me in March. It was a low point of ministry for me. What do you expect when you come to corporate worship? Jesus is calling us into his presence. And if that is true, and it is, that means we should expect nothing less than to commune with the sovereign God of the universe, to be with him, to hear from him, to meet with him, and leave this time changed by the gospel. Not only do we begin with a corporate call to worship, we see that Jesus calls us. But the second thing we see in our liturgy is that Jesus is greater. I want you to look with me at verse 10. Jesus then responds to this woman, and he says, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that was saying to you, give me a drink, then you would have asked him. In other words, if you actually knew who you were talking to right now, it would probably change the way that you respond. You see, Jesus is pointing out something that I think we can't overlook. That if you know who God really is, then it changes how we respond to him. You cannot worship God unless you see how great he truly is. If you do not understand that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, if you do not recognize the gift that he has given us in his death and resurrection, then everything that we are doing on a Sunday morning makes no sense whatsoever. And so do you know the gift that God has given you? Because if you knew, brothers and sisters, if you knew the gift of God, then it would change how you respond to him. It would even change how you respond to him in worship. And so this woman, not knowing exactly what to do with this, she responds to Jesus in verse 11, and she says, Sir, wait a minute. You have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water that you speak of? Verse 12, she says, Are you greater than our father Jacob? You see, it's clear that this woman from Samaria did not really understand who Jesus is. And so she did what any of us would do when we meet some we don't really know. We compare them to other people. And she's trying to kind of grasp Jesus, and he seems like he's something special, and so she thinks of the greatest person she can possibly fathom, Jacob, her ancestor, along with the Jews' ancestor, the great father, the 12 tribes, this man, this patriarch, Jacob. And she says, wait a minute, are you saying you're greater than he is? You see, every one of us, when we're trying to grasp who Jesus is, we compare him. Now, I, I, I recognize this morning you probably don't do a lot of comparing Jesus to Jacob. But my question for you is, what is it that you do compare Jesus to? And for some of you this morning, you hear that question, you think, wait a minute, I don't compare Jesus to anybody. I mean, I, I know he's great. I would never do that. So let me ask the question a different way. What vies for your attention other than Jesus? What is it that distracts you from hearing his voice? 
What voices are you listening to that are drowning out the voice of God's word? What is it that's occupying your heart and your head other than the presence of Jesus? When we do those things, it's as if we're saying, wait, Jesus, are you, are you saying you're greater than all this stuff around me? You see, this is why very quickly at the beginning of our worship services, we move from a call to worship to a profession of faith. Because we need to be reminded about how great Jesus really is. We need to be reminded of what we believe. We need to be reminded because we're prone to forget that when we come to corporate worship, we're bringing a bunch of baggage, a week's worth of distraction a week's worth of stuff that has weighed us down and entangled us, a week's worth of lies that have told us that God can't be trusted. And so we begin with a call to worship and then immediately a profession of faith because we cannot really worship unless we see that God is great. We cannot really worship unless we see that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He died and rose again so that you and I could have life. But if you see Jesus for who he is, and you see him as being great, you cannot stay there for long without then immediately recognize that if Jesus is great, we are not. And so in our ordinary liturgy, we move from a profession of faith to a confession of sin. You see, our liturgy not only tells us that Jesus is great, but our liturgy exposes us as the sinners that we really are. Prophet Isaiah, when he came into the presence of God, all he could do was fall on his face and say, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. Jesus came to the woman at the well, and he saw right through her. I want you to know that he sees right through you. He sees right through me too. And seeing right through this woman, verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. In this moment of being exposed, this woman did what you and I do. She tried to hide from Jesus. She tried to misdirect. She tried to kind of play it off. She didn't want to be honest with her sin. And so she responded and said, I have no husband. But you see, Jesus knew this woman from Samaria better than she knew herself. People of God, Jesus knows you better than he knows yourselves. And though you might try to hide from him, Though you might try to manage your own sin, though you might try to explain it away or self-justify it, Jesus sees right through you. And so he saw right through this woman from Samaria and continued. He said, you have, you're right in saying you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the man you live now with is also not your husband. He is calling out this woman's sin calling out her adultery, calling out the way she's giving herself to husband after husband after husband after husband. Why? 
Is it because Jesus wants to shame her? Is it because Jesus wants to put her down? No. It's because Jesus loves her. And he wants her to see her need for the gospel. Every Sunday morning, after we profess our faith, we come to a time of corporate confession of our sins. We confess our sins because we recognize that first and foremost, we sin against God. To sin simply means that we've disobeyed his authority. It means that we have made ourselves kings and queens of our own little kingdoms. And we've said, I am not going to trust you. I'm not going to obey you. I'm going to go my own way. And that is treason. The penalty for treason is death. The wages of sin is death. And yet by his grace, we have an opportunity when we come together in corporate worship to confess our sins. Not so that we could shame one another or feel shame, but so that we could meet Jesus at the foot of the cross and find forgiveness. Because after we confess our sins together, we then hear a word of assurance, a reminder that the gospel is true, that Jesus can be trusted, that when we confess our sins at the cross, we can know that every one of those sins that we have just named was nailed to the cross, that Jesus bore them in his body on the tree, that he died for them and he rose again for them, that we would have forgiveness and find victory through his victory over sin and death. When we come for corporate worship, We see ourselves as sinners, but we also find our great need of a Savior. So the fourth thing that our worship tells us is that we need the gospel. Every one of us needs the gospel. This morning, if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ died and rose again, that all who believe in him will have forgiveness and everlasting life. But Christians, do you know what? We need the gospel too. We need that story every single day. And that is why when we come to corporate worship on a Sunday morning, every time we preach God's word to you, we preach the gospel We preach Christ crucified from the whole council of Scripture. Why? Because we need Jesus, and we need him desperately. Jesus comes to this woman at the well after she tries to misdirect him again. Exposed as the sinner that she is, she changes the subject and wants to talk theology. How often do we do that? How often do we like to hide behind our theology? So she says, wait a minute. I don't want to talk about my sin. Let's instead debate where worship should be. Jesus says, no, no, no. Verse 21. He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will we worship the Father. The hour is coming, verse 23, and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Jesus is connecting Worship to the cross. When he says the hour is here, he is talking about a specific hour. In the Gospel of John, every time you see the word hour, it's referring to the hour that Jesus went to the cross. So he's saying the hour is coming. It's now here. I'm about to go to the cross. 
I'm about to die and to rise again. And when that happens, worship will change forever. When that happens, worship will be centered at the cross. It'll be centered around the good news of the gospel. Worship will happen in spirit and in truth. Genuine worship through the power of the Holy Spirit and genuine worship on the truth that Jesus Christ died and rose again for you and for me. Every time we come together as God's people to worship him, we are sitting with the good news of Jesus. So the question for you this morning is the question that the woman at the well asked as she began to tell others about what she saw. She said, can this be the Christ? This morning, what is your answer to that question? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior every Sunday? That is our declaration. And every Sunday, we have an opportunity by his grace to receive Jesus for our salvation. But the last thing that our worship tells us is that we are Christ's ambassadors. This woman at the well after Jesus tells her that he is the Christ. And by the way, she's the first person that he tells that to in the book of John. A Samaritan woman at a well is the first person that Jesus told he was the Messiah. Jesus tells her he's the Messiah and she cannot help but tell others about him. We're told this, Verse 28, that the woman left her water jar and went into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? When we meet with God in corporate worship, as we leave this place and go home to our neighborhoods and go throughout our city the other six days of the week, we should leave so transformed, so changed, so having been met with the presence and person of Jesus that we, we couldn't help but tell others about what we've seen and heard. To say, look, I've met with a man who has exposed every sin in me and yet said, those sins have been paid for. Do you know him? Have you seen the Christ? We are Christ's ambassadors, as the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians. What does that mean? It means we're his representatives. It means that the good news we have heard here today, we can go and repeat to others and tell with our lips. But it also means that we're his representatives and what the gospel has done in us. As we leave this place changed, we are living testimonies that the gospel of grace is for anyone, even the chief of sinners. And what's amazing about the story of the woman at the well is at the end of John chapter four, we are told this in verse 39, that many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. These were some of the first Christians told about Jesus from a Samaritan woman, the first person that Jesus told he was the Christ. At the end of our worship service, every Sunday we have a benediction, a blessing. Why? Because God is blessing you and me as we leave this time of corporate worship to be sent out into our city, into the world. God is blessing us as his people to be his ambassadors, to continue his mission, to extend his kingdom to Dallas and to the world. 
And so, people of God, why do we do this? Why do we come together as God's people in corporate worship? Because we need to rehearse this great story of salvation that God has given us. We need to listen to Jesus' call to respond. We need to see Jesus Christ for who he is as King of kings and Lord of lords and bow down and worship him. We need to be honest and confess our sins at the foot of the cross. And we need to receive the gospel of grace, his death and resurrection for our salvation. And then we need to go to be sent out, to be blessed as his ambassadors. Why do we worship? Why do we sing? Because we long for the day when we will bear witness to thousands and thousands of other tongues that have never known him before, now worshiping with us, declaring that he is Lord, that he is Savior, and that he is King. And so I invite you now to pray with me. And then we're going to sing a final hymn. And then you're going to be blessed as we are sent out into the world as Christ's ambassadors, the worshipers whose God is seeking. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you loved us so much that you have called us by name. That you have called us as your sons and daughters to be your people and to respond to you on your day this Sunday morning in worship. Help us as we sing this final hymn to recognize that even as we sing that you are with us, that we are in your presence. But also help us to see that as we go, we carry this great story of redemption with us. That as we rehearse this story of rescue with our liturgy, that we would carry this liturgy with us to every person that we meet. We ask this for your glory and for the good of your church in Jesus' name. Amen.